Welcome to Forest of the Future, the series where we look into how innovation in FSC can help save our forests. We all know that forests play a key role in combating climate change and the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. Today we're going to talk about something that is really close to my heart and something that I work with on an everyday basis. We are going to talk about the sustainable transition of companies and brands on large scale. What are the mega trends out there? How are we seeing value chains develop? What role does new forms of collaboration play in that development? And what should companies be aware of if they want to stay current on responsible holistic transition? And this is a topic that I could talk about for hours and often I actually do, but I figured it might be a bit boring for you to listen to a monologue. So I invited Etienne White, who is president for Brands for Goods. Hi, Etienne, and welcome. I thought I'd start with a full disclosure because the two of us used to work together and we love to talk about trends and you then left me behind. But every time I want to focus on upcoming trends or talk to somebody, what I do is I call you up. So when I wanted to do a podcast on this topic, I thought, why not just call it Yen up? You left FSC and you then joined Sustainable Brands and more specifically, you joined their Brands for Good initiative. Can you just tell listeners what that initiative is? Yes, absolutely. I'm delighted to be in conversation with you again today, Loa. Brands for Good is a collaboration of leading global brands that have got together and recognize that in sustainability, we have seen lots of pre-competitive collaboration. FSC is a great example of pre-competitive collaboration amongst companies. It's a great convener for that. What everyone recognized, though, was there wasn't a pre-competitive collaboration happening amongst the marketeers. Everything to date had been sustainability focused with an eye on the supply chain. And there was a gap where marketeers weren't able to get together in one place and say, hey, we're trying to drive, for example, the behavior of supporting women and girls, which is one of the key SDGs. How are you guys doing with that? What are your learnings from that? Can we learn from you? Can we share? And so the Brands for Good Collaboratory was born. And this is all CMOs and CSOs and their teams working together to co-create tools and really help marketeers accelerate for themselves the journey that they are on towards driving consumer behavior change at scale. We're looking for the adoption of sustainable lifestyles by mainstream consumers and most leading global brands are looking for that. Everyone is also looking for the continued ROI of sustainability. We see again and again that when brands communicate their sustainability work to consumers and communicate it as a shared effort, that it actually can confer a competitive advantage on the brands. So we're doing lots of research around the ROI of sustainability and using sustainability to help close the intention action gap. So that's what we're doing with Brands for Good. I already have a ton of follow-up questions. So one thing that actually just came to my mind when you said, what is the ROI? I actually, I just in the last episode of the podcast that I did, it was episode uh, 35, I think, uh, had Procter & Gamble on who said that with their Charmine brand, they started explaining sustainability in one of their ads. It was just pure, this is what we're doing on sustainability. 
And they hadn't really expected to get anything from that. And they were so surprised to see that consumers responded really well and they had much more brand loyalty and much more intent to purchase after seeing that advertisement than prior to seeing it. Even though it wasn't created to increase sales, it was just created to talk about them as a brand and their promise to the planet. It's a huge trend. So first of all, we have research that shows when we ask consumers, what are the barriers to living sustainably right now? One of the largest is that they just don't know where to start. They feel like the problems are too big or too complicated. They are just one person. They're not sure what difference they can make. And they're really not sure where to start. These are all signs of overwhelm. And I'm sure everyone listening to this has felt overwhelmed in their own lives at some point or another. And neuroscience tells us when you feel overwhelmed, the easy thing for your brain and body to do to be able to cope is to just shut down on that topic. Think about it. If we have a lot of consumers right now feeling that overwhelmed and it's too much, we don't want them to become disengaged. We don't want them to feel disempowered. And so really it is a sort of a remit or a mandate, if you will, that brands start talking with consumers and start showing the easy things that they can do. So that's point one (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. of my answer there. And the second one is, yes, we actually have an ad testing tool which tests film, print, out of home, in-store, on-pack. And we're seeing through the results of that, it launched just in March this year. And we're able to now see clear trends on which ads are working, which aren't, and what are the criteria that the ads that are working might have that differentiate them from the ones that are are not performing as well. One Mm -hmm. of them is simply showing people what the behavior is that they can adopt. So one of the things that we're seeing is the ads that perform best are the ones that actually demonstrate the activity. So if you want someone to recycle a plastic bottle, show them hesitating to put it in the normal rubbish bin trash can on the street that maybe doesn't have a recycling option. Show them putting it in their bag, going home and later putting it in, you know, the proper recycling bucket at home. In a way, we're almost returning to old school advertising. Think of back in the 1950s and Procter & Gamble were really good at this in the 50s and the 60s and 70s. They would always show their products in action, right? They were known for product demonstrations. And I think this will be one of the things that we will see is instead of a product demonstration of here's how you use our product, we're now showing you the consumer behavior demonstration, whether we're you know, featuring a couple and they're plugging in their car when they're getting home or or those recycling activities or you're choosing the meat-free meal. I think you're going to see a lot more of that demonstration in there. And then the third point in answer to that first question, and I'm sorry I have so many points, but it's such a rich question, is that because folks are feeling that overwhelm and they're wanting that, they're so hungry for that help, the brands that are out there doing it are driving favorability scores up just by talking about sustainability in their ads. So yes, we are seeing ads that were really around, here's what we're doing in sustainability. They were not necessarily meant to drive brand preference or favorability, and yet they are. And that Mm -hmm. tells us again how desperate the consumers are for this help. And so brands can be really helpful in that regard. One thing I would like to share, though, is that the ads we see when we test them that talk only about what the company is doing, and you can think of there's lots of sustainability ads announcing goals and commitments or talking about progress that's already made. Those ads perform well enough. But when we Mm -hmm. see that the messaging is combined where 
the company is saying what it's doing and it is giving a nudge or a demonstration of what a consumer can do, then we see that the ad forms even higher. And so really what consumers want is they want to be on this journey with us. They want it to be a dialogue. They want it to be a relationship. And then Mm -hmm. the very last point. We say, from I'm so sorry, I'm going on and on. From our ad testing results, we say we recommend that brands tell and sell. So brands shouldn't be afraid while they're telling their sustainability story to also be selling their individual products. We see an ad from Ikea that performed really well. And it's talking at a sort of overarching level about sustainability and commitments. But it's also showing, for example, more sustainable light bulbs that you can buy with them. So it's doing Mm -hmm. a great product sell. It's woven through it. And those kind of ads perform really well. So don't be afraid, brands, when you're talking about your sustainability message to also be up front and sell your products that help deliver on that too. All right, that was a long answer, but but hopefully full enough. (laughs) This is why I call you up. (laughs) And such rich examples. It really, it makes me think of one of the big Danish companies called Too Good To Go, which basically their brand promises they want all of the waste food that we have that we would normally throw in the rubbish bin. They want to give that a second life. And they, of course, do that both by selling bags with food that's close to the expiry date or restaurants that have too much takeaway made ready and then they sell it at the end of the day at a discounted price. But what they dedicate their entire social media platform to is old habit, new habit. It's a campaign which say, what would you do before? Let's say you had a lettuce and it was going soft and it's not really fit for you to eat. Well, how can you make it crisp again? How can you regrow it, etc.? So they constantly say, these are the small nudges we could do in our everyday lives, all of us. And if all of us do it, they will actually amount to something. But they aren't afraid to sell as well. It's also part of their brand that you, of course, go and buy the bags of leftover food. So if I return to those trends, because that was just one trend, companies talking more about sustainability as part of their branding. If I then ask, what are two other big trends that you're seeing out there? Can you narrow it down to such major trends? Of course, I have a few other things. There is a definite shift in that sustainability has mainstreamed. We have huge consumer awareness of it now, consumer acceptance of it, and as we've said, consumers trying to live more sustainably. In the US, we see 96% of mainstream consumers say that they are trying to live more sustainably. When you and I first started working together over a decade ago, it was still something niche. It was still something that dark green consumers were doing. So we see now that it's mainstreamed, which is fantastic. It's really good. And I would say that that mainstreaming trend is also happening in the corporate world. By that, I mean the sustainability team are no longer sciencey nerds at the end of the corridor, right? We're starting to see sustainability now as a key topic at the C-suite. We're starting to hear that shareholders and board members are expecting sustainability. So it is no longer a choice or a nice to have. It is a Mm -hmm. mandate at the highest level within companies that is now cascading down. Within that trend, there's a couple of things going on. One is we're seeing lots of goals being made, especially around 2050. I can't, I've lost count. How many companies do you think have announced net zero by 2050 this year, Lower, It's a lot. We should, it we should a lot. count. Yeah. 
And now with that, it's really interesting because the companies are having some very real conversations. Think of global leading companies that have never before set 30-year goals. Even within their business, they're not thinking about 30-year goals. And yet here they are driven through the requirements of sustainability to begin thinking in this longer frame. I think what's interesting is there are lots of companies that have made those commitments and almost as many companies that really have no clue how they are going to deliver on that and what the exact roadmap is going to look like. There's an interesting tension there where companies have the intention, but they don't quite yet have the the roadmap and the milestones to deliver on it and to have action around it. So I think we have to be careful there too. There are some folks that are worried about greenwashing in terms of making goals that maybe can't be hit. But Mm -hmm. I do think it is just more evidence of the mainstreaming of sustainability. And then Mm -hmm. one other trend I'm seeing really is around the move now from sustainability to regeneration. And that is a wonderful thing, I think. If you think that, again, this is just my frame of reference. I'm sure others might disagree. But if you think about it in this way, maybe sustainability 1.0 was CSR. We have a corporate social responsibility department and we're issuing a report every year and we're doing some good things, especially giving back in the community, for example. So sustainability 1.0 was the sort of CSR department even existing. Sustainability 2.0 was really a focus on sustainability. And it's probably where we've been for the last, gosh, eight to 10 years, truly looking at how we can do less harm through our business operations and how we can do less harm in the world in general. And we saw through that also at the tail end of sustainability 2.0, we see social and environmental coming together and the realization at a consumer level, at a corporate level, that those are interconnected and that you cannot solve one in isolation of addressing the other. And then I think what we're seeing now, which is so fantastic, and maybe in just the last 18 months, two years, and I'm hoping that this will be the trend that leads us for this climate decade, what we're seeing now is sustainability 3.0. And sustainability 3.0 is all about regeneration. We are no longer mitigating against the harm that we've done. We are instead planning and innovating and progressing around how we can leave things better than we found them. And to see leading global brands like Walmart and Nestle come out with a purpose and a positioning around regeneration is really exciting. But don't you think all of that is tied together The fact that we now have the entire C-suite in there is not just the quality people or the nerds, as you call them, that are trying to push this forward as lonely knights in an organization fighting that endless battle, but it's actually the entire company saying we have to change and we have to go towards regeneration. It's an ecosystem at work, right? Just like the forest, Mm -hmm. just like what's happening at the canopy and what's happening in the soil among the roots. There is an ecosystem and we need everyone in that ecosystem system. You know, the IPCC report that came out this year that said code red for humanity, that is a really important point for us of historical significance. Companies are recognizing there are no consumers on a dead planet, right? It is not good Mm -hmm. for business for us to carry on in the way that, that we have been to date. And so to answer your question, I think it's a full ecosystem working and unfolding just as should that has brought us to this point. 
And then to catch on what you were saying, that you are then worried that now we have all of these goals and there's no roadmap. I do understand your point, but don't you think it's better than nothing, really? I do think it's better than nothing. I agree. And I'd much rather have a plethora of companies with these net zero by 2050 goals than nothing at all. Yes, it's good. But we're allowed to temper our optimism and our enthusiasm with some reality in there too. And so again, actually, Loa, coming back to we're learning from FSC days, you and I were at FSC when in 2010, a good portion of companies were making commitments about net zero deforestation, that, that there would be no deforestation by 2020. And I mm -hmm. can remember back in 2017, 2018, talking to a friend actually who worked at Greenpeace, who was saying their phones were ringing off the hook. And so instead of them having to be activists and go out to engage companies, companies were coming to them saying, please come and help us because we're in jeopardy of not meeting those goals. And there were many companies that were not able to make that 2020 commitment that they had made. And that was just a decade away. Now we're talking about things that are 28 years away now. And so I think it is good for us to have a healthy dose of reality as we look at those and not just take them as, okay, I see company A has issued this. I'm not worried about them anymore. They're on the right path. They've claimed their intent to do something, but they are going to need lots of help working out what that roadmap is, the milestones on it, and how they can innovate. Because the systems, the products, the teams that have got us where we are today are not necessarily the ones that are going to get us to where we need to be in 2050. So we need to seriously look at the ways we organize ourselves, the systems that we work in, and really look at our, our methods of innovating as well to see how we can accelerate the progress that we need to make. So yes, I'm excited by them, but I'm also realistic about them. And I guess it all comes down to basically the topic of today, which is collaboration, because from my perspective, that is where we can innovate. I can't help but underline, though, that I am so glad, first of all, that I am now, when I work with company, I'm working with the C-suite because we can move so much more, so much faster. But I'm also really glad the companies are now daring to put out goals that they don't know how to get to. And I see a lot of new collaboration types between brands, but I'm wondering whether that's a Danish thing, a Northern European thing, or is that something that you're seeing too where you're sitting? Yeah, we are absolutely seeing that. I would say we've always seen collaboration in sustainability because really it is required, but we're seeing now is a momentum and a recognition of the need for it. People leaning in, people reaching out maybe to competitors in ways that they wouldn't have before. So we're absolutely seeing that. And actually in the work that we do in Brands for Good, we have competitors working alongside each other. And they're in those conversations together. Folks are not off on their own trying to innovate in a, you know, kind of first to market way that maybe they would have been before. So we're seeing a lot more collaboration in that sense as well. I can give a few examples from what we're seeing in FSC. We see a lot of them in the work that we do with value change and trying to develop value change. The examples that we've come up with so far have been really big brands, big machines of companies. And what we're seeing, for example, in the rubber sector is that it's a small, medium-sized company from Sweden called Iceberg who made a decision that they wanted to change their entire rubber from, first of all, synthetic rubber into natural rubber. Okay, first step towards being more regenerative. 
And then they wanted to say, well, we actually want to know where that rubber comes from. We want to know that that has a sustainable source. So we want FSC certified rubber. Problem is that there's not that much FSC certified rubber on the market that's in the quality that they need for shoes. So they needed to get forest owners certified, small forest owners, tiny little farms, basically, especially in Southeast Asia. And they don't have the purchasing volume as a small brand to make that happen on their own. So what they did was they said, well, we want to make this happen. So they invited all of the biggest global brands within the fashion, shoe, sports industry and said, come join us. Let us get all of these smallholders certified. And that initial call, and that was part of it, it was pretty cool. That initial call, all of the big brands showed up, every single one of them. They all wanted to join that coalition. And if I look just five years back, that wouldn't have happened. They would have been so protective of their sourcing that they would never have joined in such an adventure where they share basically critical information amongst each other about the information on the qualities that they're searching for, the information of the volumes that they're searching for, where they're sourcing, where they have production, etc. And now we can use that initiative to collaborate as a push to actually make sure that we have more forests that are certified, that we have better living conditions for all of these smallholders. That's a very tangible example of what we're seeing in FSC. We're seeing these across all of our different value chains that we're working with. Why do you think that is? Why is it that, that companies have gotten to a place where, where they're ready to share more sensitive information and join forces? We are definitely seeing that. And Laura, you and I have spoken before, and I, I loved the point that you made before, actually, too, on this. So I had talked about previously large companies were in the business of acquiring those small companies and then using those small companies to help the large company innovate. And examples of this might be the Clorox company buying Burt's Bees. And Burt's Bees had fantastic sustainability credentials and was able to then help the mothership on its journey towards becoming more sustainable. Another example might be Ben & Jerry's from Unilever, where Ben & Jerry's had a lot of the sustainability, including the societal piece, baked in um, from the beginning. And then they're able to help influence and help the mothership on its journey too. I think that was a kind of an older approach to doing things. And I loved in our recent conversation that you brought this point up that you're bringing up now, which is that we don't have to go and aggressively buy those companies, right? We don't have to make them part of our large, for the leading global brand, we don't have to go acquire them. So I think sustainable solutions and sustainable innovation does not need to be proprietary to that large company anymore. And they don't feel the need to acquire whoever the mm -hmm. challenger might be or the innovator might be. And I'm just making that point, but it's actually your point. So I want to attribute that to you because <laughs> it was a really good point you made. I think that's another sort of part of the trend that we're seeing here. And honestly, I don't know why that is. I think maybe it's a natural evolution. Maybe it's to do, you know, with open sourcing in general becoming more common. Maybe it's to do with the moment of crisis we're in and that this is the climate decade. And it is going to take all of us working together to be able to get to where we need to get. I actually think now sitting here wondering a bit about it, I'm, I'm actually thinking that maybe also there is a part of it that's because we just have so much more transparency now in the supply chains than we had just five, 10 years ago, where the most important thing that you could do was to keep all of your suppliers a secret from all of your competitors or who, whoever might approach them and perch them from you, basically, where now companies are increasingly getting 
just used to having completely transparent supply chains. So the fact that you are now collaborating on developing those supply chains no longer actually is a threat to you because it's no secret where you're buying your products from anymore. For most of the big brands, you can look it up online and most companies are proud to have the supply chains that they have, at least the ones that work with them seriously. So maybe that's part of the puzzle as well, that, that it's it is no longer so dangerous to open up and show who's actually working with you. And also maybe now that sustainability truly has mainstreamed and those large global brands, the Amazons, the Targets, the Walmarts. I remember talking with a retailer when I worked with FSC and they were a small, maybe on a good day, medium-sized retailer and they procured and sold wood furniture. And in a conversation with them, they were saying, please don't talk to us. We're working as hard as we can. Our problem is FSC supply. So please spend your time going and speaking to the to the large folks, the large companies who are buying at such volume that if they can change their procurement processes and policies, everything will lift for us. And so I think that's a part of it too. I think now you have leading global players involved at solving and opening up and making transparent those supply chains. And obviously the technology as well. We didn't have the technology for tracking in the way that we do now. So I think maybe all of those mm -hmm. things are converging. But actually what we're seeing also is then if you would have that example today, what you might have seen was that retailer would have, instead of saying to you, please don't talk to us, go talk to the big companies, maybe what they would have said today was, please help us talk to the big companies let us yes. together transform those supply chains and that's what we're seeing we're seeing a soaring in the amount of initiatives from brands to help transform entire supply chains joining forces to shift their supply chains in all of the different product groups where they can't get a sustainable source for the products that they're searching for. We're seeing it at Viscos, we're seeing it at Rattan, in rubber, in timber. Really, companies joining up with their competitors and saying, can we get more forest areas certified? Can we get more certified material in our supply chains and benefit collectively? That's fantastic. I agree with you. I think that, that is how the conversation would have gone today. Do you think all of this matters to the consumers? I think it all matters to the consumers. I think that is another mega trend. Eight out of 10 consumers say all things being equal, if their competitor has a product that on every other aspect is the same as the product I'm used to buying, if theirs is sustainable, I will swap. That's eight out of 10 people. 80% of people saying I will swap for a more sustainable mm -hmm. option. About 11 years ago, when we commissioned the global global consumer research for FSC, we saw that price and performance were the top two barriers for consumers when choosing a more sustainable product. They worried it'd be more expensive, and then they worried there'd be a trade-off on performance. We mm -hmm. just did research ourselves. We did it last year and again this year, and of course lower because I am a nerd when it comes to the consumer behavior shifts we made sure to repeat that same question in there and we actually gave people a list of what are the barriers and the bottom of that list least voted was performance and I think that just speaks to as well all of the innovation that's happened in this last decade so that consumers now whether they're choosing a cleaning product whether they're choosing a cereal bar to eat whether they're choosing a vehicle to drive front of mind for them is not thinking I have to trade off in performance as I do this the cleaning product isn't going to work as well the food isn't going to taste as good the vehicle's not going to perform as well so everything now there is no longer a perception that you are trading off on performance when you make a sustainable choice and that is a break 
breakthrough in and of itself. And so I think that has now become bottom of the list is credit to everyone who's been innovating and working hard for the last decade. But I think it also shows now that there really is nothing stopping consumers that now that that has gone, there are still some price concerns. We still see price in the top reasons for barriers for entry, but Mm -hmm. we're seeing that less so as well. So no, consumers are primed. Consumers absolutely care. And then you are also seeing now, which we never could have conceived 10 years ago, but you're seeing employee activism. You're seeing employees staging walkouts if they don't agree on a tech company's policy around AI, for example. You're seeing employees show up at shareholder meetings and be activists. And so, and employees are consumers too. So we are seeing now much more action and activism amongst consumers than we had seen before. And I think that is a good trend. All of what you said made me think that consumers and employees, by the way, as well, are just so much more educated and and smart or intelligent than we give them credit for. When we worked together 11 years ago, it was really simplify the message, simplify the message, simplify the message, because consumers won't get it. And that's still what I'm hearing a lot of times when I'm with companies. They're like, consumers won't get it. And I think actually when you go out and you speak to consumers, they get it so much more than we give them credit for. They can comprehend some of these really difficult, really entangled subjects much more than we give them credit for. Yes, absolutely. And I would say, too, that we need to be cognizant of millennials, Gen Z and now Gen Alpha. I'm raising a child who's a Gen Alpha and sustainability and and climate awareness has been there from day one for many of these folks. And I think we're finally seeing that now changing as millennials advance in the workforce, as millennials have more disposable income. There was an example, I might be misquoting the city, but there was a teenager It was Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, I'm not sure. She did a tweet. Finally, the makeup brand that she really wanted to buy was featuring black models in their advertising. And that's great because there's more diversity, right? So she was super Mm -hmm. excited about that. But before she then went to the store to buy the makeup, she went online and looked at their management team and their board of directors. And there was no diversity there. And so she tweeted about it and about how she still won't be buying from that brand. Thank you for including you know, black models in your advertising and being more diverse in your communications, but you are not a truly diverse company yet. So I'm still not going to be buying my makeup from you. And it's a very simple message and probably only took her a couple of minutes to do, but it shows a much more advanced understanding of the key issues. And actually that really brings me to one of the next points I wanted to talk to you about, which really is one thing is that consumers care, but they also want to be invited in when we're talking about partnerships, when we're talking about collaboration, when we're talking about joining forces, what we're also seeing is an expectation from consumers, of course, that you're truthful. So if you use diverse models in your advertisement, that should also be reflective of what you're doing in your companies. But what we're also seeing, at least from where I sit, is really consumers expecting and asking for brands to invite them in to to help them innovate, to help them figure out what to do next in sustainability and in solving the challenges that they're looking at. Yes, absolutely. We are seeing that going back to the ad testing tool, we have the ads that are inviting consumers in, the ads that are saying, here's what we're doing, here's what you can do, and we're all in this together, are the ads that are performing best. And when I say performing best, inspiring action, actual change, but also driving brand favorability as well. And we see 
that being a major trend, consumers definitely wanting to be a part of the dialogue and be a part of the conversation. I like to get quite tangible, Etienne, in these podcasts, and the vast majority of companies listening to this podcast won't be the Procter and Gambles or the Nestle's of this world. They will be the small and medium-sized brand who want to do good, who want to join the trends, who wants to be forward-minded. If we were to give them a piece of advice, let's say they're an FSC certificate holder, if we wanted to give them a piece of advice about where to start if they want to go down this road of collaboration, if they want to actually really start transitioning, where would you advise them to start? That's a great question. I don't think that the size matters in one sense and apologize, if you will, for having used lots of examples of larger brands that's just who I'm working with right now. But I think that the lessons that we are getting are applicable to companies of any size. And so lessons around talking about your sustainability commitments, your progress are important for customers to hear. We are seeing consistently that people would rather see progress over perfection. And something that some companies fall into is what we call green hush. Green wash is at one end of the spectrum where you're making unsubstantiated claims about what you're doing. Um, And Green Hush is the opposite end of that same spectrum where you're saying, gosh, we have so much to do. We're not going to talk about it until it's done. And sustainability is a journey in some ways without destination because we just keep reiterating and improving. And what customers, consumers are telling us that they want to see is messaging around the progress, accepting that no company will ever be perfect, just as they in their lives will never be perfect. So I would encourage brands of any size to communicate the progress they are making and to not fall into green hush or worry about being perfect first. That's one thing I would say. Another thing Mm -hmm. I would say, which I think actually does pertain to smaller, medium-sized companies, is we are also seeing a trend of the importance of community for consumers. In part, this might be a silver lining of COVID. We saw global supply chains fracture through the COVID lockdowns and continuing issues there. And so this idea of shopping local, this idea of buying regionally, regional supply systems is something that is trending right now. And we're also seeing sort of outside of that, but potentially also from COVID, for consumers, them reporting that a company having a positive impact in their direct community is very important to them as well. And consumers also saying that there is a renewed sense of reliance on their immediate community. So that sense of belonging that comes from it is really important to consumers. And I think that's an area that honestly, small and medium-sized companies would do well to lean into and is an area that can help, again, differentiate them from maybe some of the global players who might not be able to do that. Mm -hmm. At least it's an area where it will be much easier for a small and medium-sized brand to be authentic about how they connect to that particular community, I guess. Actually, what your first point uh, that we shouldn't be green hushing and that we should go out and talk and that consumers understand I'm really happy that you said that. In the beginning of our conversation, it was a lot about, well, companies make these big goals 
and they go out and communicate them, but they don't know how to get there. And I think it's really important that we underline that you should be talking about what you're doing and you should also be talking about what you're doing, even though you don't know every single step of the way of how to get there, because nobody will know every single step of the way. And from my perspective, what I, I love to use as an example when I talk about this is if you know where you want to go, but you don't know how to get there, if you're open about that fact, it can also be an invitation to innovators, to other companies who are trying to work on the same problem, to consumers, to employees, to everyone to really try and offer your solutions that might help you solve that difficult puzzle of how do we move from A to B. I love giving Lego as an example because they were brave enough to go out there and say we want to be fossil fuel free by 2030. It means that they have to invent a new way of making plastic because Legos are made of plastics which are made of fossil fuels. So they have to reinvent how we do plastics and they want to do that without losing quality or durability or look or just the fact that when you buy a Lego brick now it has to have the same color shade as it had 50 years ago. So massive challenge. And when they went out and said that, it just brought up a heap of small innovators and research institutions and all sorts of different people wanting to help solve that challenge. So I know that that's, again, big brand example, but <laughs> so I'm no better than you really. But <laughs> I really think it's important that we dare go out and say to both our competitors and our customers, we don't know how to solve this. Can you help us? And I think people will find that there's a lot of creative minds out there who would love to help solve those challenges. I am once again in agreement with you, Loa, but I do feel the need to qualify then or preface what I had said at the beginning of the session here because you're bringing it up again. So my fear with the 2050 goals is companies that are not simultaneously addressing halving emissions by 2030. If you have a 2050 goal where you are halving emissions by 2030, brilliant well done, amazing. And I'm fully in support of that. I am seeing though a trend of companies getting on this net zero by 2050 wave, but that are not maybe making those commitments. And that is a really hard commitment to make, by the way, slashing greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by the end of the decade is super hard. Mm -hmm. And the companies that are able to do it are few and far between in that sense. So there is a part of me that just wants to be a realist when I see those commitments made. And there is a part of me that has learned to question and look beyond the headline. So that's where that specific piece comes from. Back to me, mm -hmm. though, then as a marketeer, and I've been a marketeer for over 20 years now. Yes, absolutely. It is important that companies talk about what they are intending to do, even when they may not know how to get there. I love your Lego example. And I absolutely think we need to be courageous. We need to be daring. We need those audacious goals. And we need to bring other people with us that will help solve them and inspire others that what looks like it might be impossible can indeed be possible. Actually reminds me of the FSC strategy right now, which is to make sure that we realize the true value of forests. So right now, forest is just by many regarded as a place where we go and extract things and we want mm -hmm. them to be realized for, for their true value, for their importance to ecosystems, for their importance to the climate, for their importance to many, many people who are dependent on them. 
But we can only get to that if we get many little boats to to lift the tide together. And that's why we're initiating a lot of these different collaborations between all sorts of partners and organizations so that we jointly can really make a change for the world's forests. I love hearing that because, again, you know, FSC was born out of the need for us to sustainably manage our forests, which is to say, I think, in retrospect, a sustainability 2.0 perspective, which is Mm -hmm. conceding that we'll keep extracting and just make sure that we do less bad along the way, right? And what you're talking about now is the sustainability 3.0, which is around regeneration and leaving things better than we found them. And in that way, we'll, of course, be evaluating a forest on the value that it gives an entire ecosystem, not just the extractive value it might hold for humans. We are definitely at 3.0. We are even looking into restoration and certification of degraded forest areas that are being restored and all sorts of exciting things that you would love to dive more into, I'm sure. But we're almost out of time, Etienne. I'm going to ask you one last question. So if I called you up again in two years, what will have changed Where do you think we will be on all of these collaborations and companies trying to move towards true impact and sustainability? I'm not sure that I know at the more granular level about collaboration between companies where we'll be in two years. I might not be that good a futurist. What I do think will have changed for everyone, and I hope within the next two years, will be the narrative and the storytelling around the climate crisis. We began our podcast talking about the C-suite and the sustainability mandate being there, if you will. I Mm -hmm. see that as almost the end of a chapter and maybe the next chapter and maybe the narrative arc that we will start building here as a society, as a community of companies, NGOs, governments, all working together to mitigate against the climate crisis. Maybe that storytelling will be around creating code green for humanity. Maybe we won't be motivated by the fear of what is happening and we'll be focused instead on the storytelling that is going to inspire action, that is going to inspire innovation and that tells of a positive future. And I think that storytelling arc we will be well into in the next two years. And I think that might fundamentally shift how consumers and how companies respond, because I think that this is something that will call them in as opposed to science kind of calling us all out. It's more optimistic. And I think that it might result in the acceleration and the progress that we need to see. That's it. I'm sure that you could tell that we were close to my personal interests in this conversation. How I hope that Etienne is right. That we in two years will have done so much trial and error that we've gotten at least some things right. That we will see whole new forms of collaborations. Because as Etienne said, there are no consumers on a dead planet. If you want to get a notification of the next podcast episode as it releases, if you want to get in touch with us or just follow our work, I strongly encourage you to join our LinkedIn group. It's called FSC Digital Innovations and it's open for everyone. You can also always get in touch with me on digitalinput at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm and this was Forest for the Future.